right. I left my notes for introducing our guest speaker this morning. So we'll see how I do, Ed. You just correct any blanks that I miss. Uh, so Ed Underwood was with our staff and elders doing an intensive retreat this weekend. Uh, Ed was previously, he served at several different churches, but he was most recently before, I'm going to call it retiring with quotes. Um, you know how pastors retire with quotes like Dwayne, right? Yeah. So uh, for over 20 years, he was at uh, Church of the Open Door in Southern California, leading that church there. And about five or six years ago, Ed moved to full-time coaching pastors and leaders and elder boards and teams, helping them to really reshape and, and enter into a healthy culture that really impacts not just them personally, but the church around them as well. I met Ed through, uh, some of you know Kevin Butcher, who's been with us here before. Uh, Kevin Butcher's team uh, is where I met Ed through there. But Ed is also connected with a name that's familiar to many of you. John Lynch, who speaks here as well, is another uh, mutual connection we have. And uh, their church has him speak up there, or had him quite a bit. And so finally, we had to, you know, get our turn. So would you guys give a warm Hope Covenant family welcome to Pastor Ed Underwood. Yeah, it's been a real joy to be here um, in the work that I do working with uh, troubled churches and and wounded pastors and wounding pastors and church bullies. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, it's, just, it's been a joy. Doug invited me in uh, not being in trouble. And it's been a joy to teach principles that would uh, lead to sustainable unity. And uh, that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about sustainable unity. It's... Uh, Oh, yeah, there we go. We're good. Um, and the truth that Jesus must be at the center. Jesus must be at the center. Now, I'll tell you where this came from. I was, um, I handed off to a young man. I pastored Church of the Open Door uh, for uh, 21 years, and I handed off to a young man, Dave Anderson. And over the last couple of years, as everybody knows, the church has just been bonkers and divided and um, and I've traveled all over uh, the country preaching in churches, and uh, I don't think I've ever seen uh, churches more divided. Uh, it's, been a, it's been a tough thing. So anyway, uh, Dave asked me if I would preach on uh, prophecy because we had people who were, who were pressuring him to preach on uh, prophecy and where COVID fit into prophecy. And uh, I wasn't, I said, yeah, I guess I could. I mean, I believe in prophecy. One third of the Bible is prophecy. What I'm not on board with is when people are lining up, you know, headlines with prophecy. And uh, so I said, okay, I'll do it. And I had this sermon all figured out on prophecy. You know, where does COVID fit in prophecy? And uh, really, I just uh, called Dave and I said, you know, I could... Uh, it's a one-sentence sermon. Nowhere. <laughs> Nowhere. <laughs> COVID is not in prophecy. Um, but I said, something happened to us, to Judy and me, and it was very dramatic, and I would like to preach on that. And, uh, and that's what I'm going to preach on this morning. Sustainable unity. Uh, unity is important. Jesus says in John 17 that the validating factor to his claim to be the, um, the savior of the world, sent by the Father, Messiah of Israel, 
um, rescuer of creation is sustained by the unity of the church. It's not sustained by good doctrine. I'm all for good doctrine. It's not sustained by great programs. I think great programs are good. It's sustained by the unity of the church. And I believe that one way that we can have sustainable unity is by keeping our lives centered on Jesus. The early church was Jesus-centered. Christians met in homes under the leadership of devout leaders called elders or deacons. At the center of their gathering was the Lord's table. There was no hierarchy or administration. Believers devoted themselves to the teachings of the apostles, godly and sacrificial living, justice and benevolence, and sharing the message of new life in Christ. Message of new life in Christ is awesome. This is the message of the new life in Christ. For you or me to have a relationship with God, the God of the universe, a whole lot of work needs to be done. More work than we could ever do. That's why it's been done by Jesus Christ. And he gives us eternal life freely when we trust in him. And he makes us new. That's the gospel. If you're a guest today and you've heard a shame and guilt gospel, let me just apologize for the church. It's all about grace. It's all about love. It's all about truth. Grace changes everything. I'm a Judy, my wife Judy and I are, are Jesus Movement converts. We came to Christ through the Jesus Movement in Southern California. Never been to church in my life. And, you know, um, I can remember the first time I heard the gospel at a Young Life meeting. I remember thinking, this is too good to be true. But it isn't, is it? It's just true. Um, the history of the church, the ups and downs, are easily explained by this sentence. When the church, when the church moves, I get this thing stay on. When the church moves, Jesus to the margins, following him becomes weary and burdensome. It becomes a weary journey. Jesus must be at the center. And you would think that after five decades of being in Christ that I would have learned that lesson by now. When following Jesus is weary and burdensome, I must have taken my eyes off of him. If only, and this is when I had the sermon prepared on prophecy, but I was going through a really tough time at Recentered. Uh, a pastor that uh, I had worked with for three years suddenly resigned. It broke my heart. Um, I was working with all these churches. I was thinking, why did I ever do this? My life is a waste. Uh, it's, uh, I'm a depresso. So I just go to dark, dark places. And I, you know, I don't should I have even stepped in there? I don't know if I should have done it or not. And, um, and then Judy and I uh, were going to up the Central Valley uh, to, and I was going to perform 
I was going to perform a memorial service for a, a really good friend of ours who died suddenly. And they had moved up to up near Sacramento, and I was going to be there. And Judy said, you know, we need a break. Uh, I'm a workaholic. Uh, I'm, it's my pathology. And uh, I said, I, I can't have a break. But, you, know, you know, i got too many to do. i got to you know, Zoom meetings and there's pastors. And this guy's flipping out, this wife. Anyway, um, because, you know, we just, Judy and I just get to work. We love these pastors. And um, so anyway, I was, uh, I, was, uh, I was really in a bad place. And she said, could we just please, we're going to be up there. Let's go to Three Rivers and just go to VRBO. Three Rivers is a beautiful little town in the, uh, on the west side of the, of the Sierras. And she said, let's just go to, uh, to Three Rivers and, um, and just relax. So we did, and it was good for me. Um, and then something happened in Three Rivers that shocked me back to Jesus must be at the center of my life. It says in, um, in Colossians that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is the head of the body of the church, the firstborn from among the dead. I want to look at, there's so many passages we can look at. We're going to look at three very briefly. Second Corinthians, uh, the, the, the theme of Second Corinthians is triumph and trials. Uh, the focus passages we'll be looking at is 2 Corinthians 3.18 and 4, 5 through 6. Then we're going to be looking at Colossians. The theme of Colossians is Jesus is enough. And our focus passage will be Colossians 3, 1 through 4. And then finally, we'll be looking at the book of Hebrews. And the theme of Hebrews is Jesus is better, and I'll introduce them. The focus of that passage, of passage will be Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And the main idea of what I'm saying today is the longer you look at Jesus, the more you will want to follow him in this broken world. The longer you look at Jesus, the more you will look, you will want to follow him and serve him in this broken world. The theme of 2 Corinthians, if you turn to 2 Corinthians, the theme of 2 Corinthians is triumph and trials. They were going through great uh, persecution. And Paul uh, writes them and says that the Holy Spirit moves believers towards the goal of living righteously before God by conforming, uh, conforming us to the image of Christ, living out of what he says is already true of us, that we've been changed, and he is changing us into the same image from glory to glory as we look into the glorious face of God in the flesh. So the first passage, if you have your Bibles, please, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 18. My words, uh, you know, I crafted them, but they're not inspired. These words are. Uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. We'll begin at verse 17. Paul says... Whoops, I'm here, yeah. Uh, Jesus must be at the center, triumph and trials. Paul says, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is present, there is freedom. And we all, 
with unveiled faces reflecting the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, which is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. From one degree of glory. I, read, I use the Net Bible. It's my, my favorite Bible. Uh, you'll, you'll see that Paul often says, uh, from glory to glory, from faith to faith, from grace to grace. He uses that a lot. And uh, there are a lot of Hebrewisms since the writers of the, of the New Testament, except for Dr. Luke, uh, were, were Hebrews. And it means an ever-increasing experience of glory. We are hardwired when we trust in Christ. We are made new. And we are set up by God to have ever-increasing experiences of glory. The way I always explain it is, Judy and I, uh, Cannon Beach is one of our favorite places. I go there six times a year to teach at a Bible college or do uh, Bible conferences. It's, a, it's the beach in Oregon. We just love it up there. And we will often sit, and those Oregon, those waves are coming in. And we'll go, oh, man, that's the best one. No, 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 that's the best one. That's the way the Christian life is supposed to be. Ever-increasing experiences of the glory of God. How does that happen? Well, if we look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, we're going to see the theme of what I'm talking about today. But even, I'll begin at verse uh, 5. For we do not proclaim ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, is who one who shined in our hearts to give us the light of the glorious knowledge in the face of Christ. These ever-increasing experiences of glory come when we are fixing our eyes, as Hebrews would say, on Jesus. It is a transforming look. It is a calming look. I have a picture of me, you got to take this by faith, uh, back in my younger days, that's July 4th, 1971, I was on a hotshot crew in Southern California, and every July 4th, we're on a fire, and that's me in the back there, but the guy in the front with the goggles on is Bill Sanborg, and Bill Sanborg was our superintendent, one of the, he was the best fireman I ever worked for, and when we, we got burned over, I was on a couple hundred fires, we got burned over about 10 or 20 times. And it's a, it's a frightening experience. And here's what Bill would always, he'd always do the same thing. He would lean forward on his shovel, light a cigarette. You know, like, I remember thinking, that's the last thing this dude needs is more smoke. <laughs> and he would puff on that cigarette, he'd say, all right, men, roll down your sleeves because we were, so we'd roll down our sleeves. Um, let's pull out those fire tents. We had these little fire tents that were like a pup tent, and they were supposed to reflect heat. We always thought that instead of frying, we would bake, but um, anyway, pull out your fire tents, and we'd, and we'd put them on our lap. We never had to get in them, but the calmness of his face the calmness of his face, 
gave us confidence. And that's what Paul is saying to these Christians who are under so much pressure. He's already been hard on them. Now he's writing a kinder letter. But he's saying, when you look, you're looking into the face of God when you look into the face of Jesus. Jesus must be at the center. The longer you look at Jesus, the more you want to follow him and serve him in this broken world. I'm praying that the Spirit will use our time together to persuade those of you who are discouraged and weary to look to Jesus and find rest for your soul. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And we've been making his yoke hard and his burden heavy because we have taken, think about this. I was in a church in Texas, absolutely divided over masks. Texas is like, they have a bumper sticker. I went to Dallas Seminary, I lived there for five years. It's a whole nother country. And so I have lymphoma. I always want to say that, so if the sermon sucks, at least you, I get the pity card. So, anyway, and I'm wearing a mask. And nobody's wearing a mask. I mean, it's the Wild West in Texas. And this guy came to me and he goes, oh, you're one of those. And I said, one of what? And you're a masker. I said, no, I am, I got a little loose. I said, no, I'm a brother in Christ who has leukemia. And I would think that uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11 would prompt you to put me first. <laughs> think about it. Masks compared to Jesus. Think about it, politics left and right compared to Jesus. A leftist Christian and a far-right Christian have commonality in Jesus Christ. And it is a ministry of reconciliation. We love each other because of him. When we take our eyes off of Jesus, it just becomes a weary and burdensome journey, doesn't it? Now we will look at the book of Colossians. Turn in the right of your Bible to the book of Colossians. Colossians, uh, the theme of Colossians is Jesus is enough. The background of Colossians is that Paul is in Ephesus and a young man, I mean, Paul's in jail in Rome, but a young man by the name of Epaphras, who was at the school of Tyrannus, where Paul taught, uh, he took the gospel to the Lycus Valley, where he was from. Uh, three churches, Herapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. At the time of the writing of Colossians, Colossae was the big city. But what was happening there was that people were saying Jesus isn't enough. I mean, they're still saying, Satan isn't creative. He just rolls out the same old lies every 10 years, and Christians go, you know, they, we go after it. Jesus isn't enough. Uh, it's a good start, but you got to add all these, other, all these other things. And they were into all sorts of things. And, and he says Jesus is enough. Um, the, uh, there was a hymn. If you'll uh, look at Colossians 1, 15 through 20, you'll see that it, is, um, it's, it looks like a poem in your Bible. It should, anyway. And, we think, and we're pretty sure that this is a New Testament hymn. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For all things in heaven and on earth were created by him. Jesus is not the little brother of the Godhead. 
He's a creator of heaven and earth. All things, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions, whether principalities or power, all things were created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and all things are held together in him. He is the head of the body of the church, as well as the beginning of the firstborn. Um, he is, uh, the whole point is that he is the preeminent one in creation, the preeminent one in the church from among the dead, so that he himself may become first in all things. And through him, to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. This seems to have been, um, they taught their theology through, through hymns and through uh, oral tradition and as they were getting the, uh, the, the New Testament, you know, the, the epistles. The central truth of the new covenant is given in Colossians 1.27 where Paul says God wanted to make known to them, the Gentiles, the glorious riches of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, if we don't take this in its historical context from the arc of the Bible, we lose the power. So let me just very briefly go through the arc of the Bible. I, 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 I'm not a fan of proof texts. Uh, I've taught through every book of the Bible and, and every uh, memory verse I ever, I ever uh, memorized, um, I realized that I memorized it out of context. <laughs> and a lot of proof texts are out of context. But this is the, the central arc of the Bible. Uh, God's deepest desire is that he can dwell with us. Uh, Genesis 12, Abraham is, everything changes. You know, you go from Genesis 1 through 11, whoop, right to Abraham. It's, <laughs> the purpose is to take these slaves and tell them you are special. Tell them they are special. In Exodus 29, 45, God says, I will dwell among the children of Israel and be their God. In Exodus 40, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In 2 Chronicles 7, the glory enters the temple Solomon built in Jerusalem. And then in Ezekiel 10, in Ezekiel 10, the glory of the Lord, the Babylonians, it's the time of, uh, uh, of, the, uh, of the exile, the Babylonians are tearing it up, um, Ezekiel 10 is so touching. The glory of the Lord leaves the temple. And this is how the glory of the Lord leaves the temple. The glory of the Lord haltingly leaves the temple. Slowly. Dragging his feet, kind of. Uh, haltingly, painfully. The glory of the Lord leads the Holy of Holies and it tarries. And then it goes to the outside, to the inner court. It tarries again. And then it goes to the temple entrance. It tarries again. And then it goes across the Kidron Valley to what we know as the Mount of Olives. And it tarries again. And it leaves. No glory of the Lord but the people of Israel. So then... 
Zerubbabel comes back. He finds favor with the Persians. He rebuilds the temple. Guess what? No glory. The glory doesn't enter the second temple. 400 silent years. Rabbis are writing. Why not the glory of God? Herod makes this thing a magnificent uh, temple. No glory. It was promised that the glory of God would come back to God's people. This is the drama of Palm Sunday. That's what happened. John says that Jesus exegetes God for us. Exegete means to explain it in ways that we can understand. If our God isn't Jesus-shaped, we're worshiping the wrong God. The glory of the Lord enters the temple. About 600 years after the glory left the temple of Solomon, the glory of the Lord enters the second temple in the person of the God who became flesh and dwelt among us. Now we read Colossians again. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is radical. It wasn't what they were expecting. They weren't expecting the glory of the Lord to actually inhabit human beings. That's the church age. This is our, this is grace. The longer you look, and then in chapter three, one through four, uh, we always want to start at chapter five in Colossians and put off the old and put on the new, but he says in chapter three, one through four, I want you to think of the, uh, of the work of God, the impact on your past life, that your life is now hidden with Christ in God and you have a future with him. And then he says, dwell on him. Dwell on him. Chapter three. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Keep thinking about things above, not things on earth. For you have died. That's what's happened. Your life is hidden with Christ in God now. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will be revealed with him in glory. But notice, he talks about dwelling on Jesus first before he starts talking about the life changes. We get it backwards. We beat people up over not having the life changes and we don't know if they have a, a, a rich relationship with Jesus Christ. It flows from the relationship, from the love, the sustaining love of Jesus. Is what brings holiness to our life. And then finally, the book of Hebrews, one of my favorite, favorite books. It just fascinates me that the God of the Bible wanted so much to know what it felt like to be us. Think about it. It says in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, that every temptation, whenever you read the word temptation in the New, temptation, in the, in the New Testament, um, you need to understand that the Hebrew mindset, the guys that are writing it, they saw as a trial as a temptation and a temptation as a trial. So there's nothing we feel that Jesus hasn't felt. There's nothing we face. He said goodbye to his mother from a cruel Roman cross. He, his trust was violated. He was, uh, he, he, I just think about this. You know, people, Judy says, you shouldn't use that illustration. I'm going to use it because I think it's good. If she was here, she'd correct me. My wife corrects me from the front row. That's what, it's just, 
She did it just two weeks ago at Cannon Beach. I'm preaching. These people don't even know us. It's a Bible conference. I'm giving an illustration. She said, that's not how it happened. I said, that's the way I remember it. Anyway. But I used to, he had colds. He got sick. His friends died. He had diarrhea. Think about it. The son of God. He had to have his diapers changed. He cried for his milk. He, he knows, I pray to a God who knows what it feels like to be me. So uh, in Hebrews, uh, some, uh, it was a church, uh, probably a small church in Asia Minor, all Hebrew people, and their pastor, it's very eloquent, the, the Greek of of uh, Hebrews, it's just it's as eloquent as the Greek of John. And uh, every Sunday, fewer and fewer people are showing up. Sunday they had their church on Sunday night, and uh, so he writes this, and he wants to prove to them that Jesus is better. So in the prologue, Christ is God's superior and final revelation. The basis for the warnings against failing to persevere in Christ: Don't drift. Jesus is superior to the angels. Don't leave the church. Christ is superior to Moses. Don't be babies. Christ is superior to Aaron. He mediates a superior covenant. Don't sin on purpose. Christ meets you in a superior sanctuary. Jesus is better. Therefore, Hebrews eleven six, trust him. Without faith, it is impossible to trust him. But how does he bring it all together? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews is a lot like Romans. It's got 11 introductory chapters, and then boom, the application. It's one of the strongest applications in the New Testament. Therefore, and he takes all three Greek words for therefore. It's the only place that happens in all of the New Testament. He takes all three, he uses bad grammar and he's eloquent. He takes all three therefores dia, all of them in the Greek language and he makes a new word out of them. Paul would do that all the time. Um, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, we must get rid of every weight and the sin that clings so closely and run with endurance the race set out before us, keeping our eyes fixed. It's a present active participle, meaning that we keep doing it. It's active. We're doing this. Keeping our eyes fixed. It means to turn your eyes from something to something else. Turn your eyes from masks to Jesus. Turn your eyes from the circumstance you don't like to Jesus. Turn your eyes from the disappointments to Jesus. Turn your eyes from the fears to Jesus. Turn your eyes from uh, all that distracts us to Jesus. He is everything. The pioneer, the word is archegos. Pioneer is an okay translation. What it really means is trailblazer. He is the trailblazer that goes before us. We're not doing it on our own. But if you're going to follow a a trailblazer, you better be looking at him. I worked for the Forest Service on that hotshot crew. We got lost so many times because we'd take our eyes off of Whoever was in front of us would go, hey, wait, where is everybody? This is a fire, I'm gonna get killed. 
um, the perfecter of our faith, for the joy set out for him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. And I always picture him whispering men to the Father's ear, it's hard for them down there. I really think he says that because he experienced it. Think of him, dwell on him. Three passages, three churches in crisis. And what does he say to all of them? Jesus must be at the center. The only way to have sustaining unity in a church is that we're all focused on the same person and his name is Jesus. You and I can disagree. I mean, I've been married to Judy for 51 years. You know, we still disagree on the same things we disagreed on the first year of our marriage. I thought she'd learn. The longer you look at Jesus, the more you will want to follow him and serve him in this broken world. And then I have a picture here of a, uh, oh wow, I'm way behind. Just keep going. That's the airborne school. There, right there. So we're at Three Rivers. And this is where this sermon came from. And we had a nice time. We stayed in this really nice place on the river. And there's a little town, Three Rivers. And Judy said, I'd like to go to the Presbyterian Church in Three Rivers. Really? Yeah. Why? I'll tell you. So we went on Sunday afternoon um, to the church. Church was over, and we could only get into the basement. And uh, Judy said, will it be open tomorrow? Because we're going to leave on Monday. Yeah, you can go. So a lady led us into the church. And you see that pew right there, the last one on the left side as you're looking at it? Jesus, Judy's daddy died when she was in sixth grade. A Presbyterian pastor down the road took in her family. Her mother became an alcoholic and abandoned them. She had to go to juvenile hall. I didn't know any of this. I knew her. I, she was a cheerleader. I thought she must have the greatest life in the world. And this Presbyterian pastor asked her if she would want to go to a snow camp. And she said, sure, I'll go to the snow camp. And we have a CD of it. And there's this little scared girl. I mean, she's got nothing. And that pastor said, if any of you would like to know more about Jesus, come up, come upstairs. And she sat down there and she just started weeping. And she said, this is where Jesus ripped me down with his love. This is where I met Jesus. This little out of the way Presbyterian church in the middle of nowhere. And it hit me, why am I so preoccupied with all that's wrong in my life? This same Jesus who reached down and grabbed that little girl's heart and has cared for her and loved her and led her 
and helped us all three times. My son went to war when my daughter got a divorce when I almost died. He has always been there. I have always only known love from him. He will never let you down. Don't be distracted. The longer you look at Jesus, the more you're going to want to follow him in this broken world. I don't know what's going on in your life right now that distracts you, but I want to pray for you, okay? Father, I want to pray for these who are here today. Everybody has a story. Everybody has a hurt. Everybody has a wound. Um, I just pray that we would hear what the scriptures say. That Jesus must be at the center. And if anyone has moved Jesus to the margins of his or her life because of politics, because of disappointments, because of fears, because of doubts, because of pressures, I just pray, I don't know if I did a good job with this, but I pray that they would remember that Jesus must be at the center. He is the only one who will never let us down. Praise his holy name, amen.